0: Today, I'm joined by Justin Murphy. He is the father of Other Life, which is a blog, newsletter, and podcast, uh, Imperium. Imperium? Yeah, no. (laughs) And uh, um, of Indie Thinkers, which is also uh, the place where I met Justin, which is a community of intellectuals um, on the internet. Hi, Justin.
1: Hey Alex, thanks for having me. How are you doing today?
0: Good, good. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because you're kind of one of the first people that I met who were, you know, really involved and in, in thinking on the internet and, you know, putting yourself out there. Um, and, you know, you've kind of created this whole brand for people. Like me uh, to to understand how you know how this business works if if you could call it a business this this grift <laughs> to be on the internet and to you know have a voice so yeah I'm I'm, I'm grateful for that I mean I met default friend through you you're you're a super connector I really like the the platform so yeah I'm, I'm excited to chat to you
1: oh, I'm glad to hear that thank you very much for that and I remember when we first met yeah there's was- uh, what a couple of years ago, probably I guess, right? It or was one year ago, maybe. It was
0: last, uh, I think, August or September. So,
1: right on. I I remember it, it's cool because you were, you know, talking about getting more serious about your work on the internet, and and you've really gone and done it. I, I see you out there working hard and really, you know,
0: Tweet, tweeting really, hard, yeah, <laughs> tweeting hardest. <laughs> Are you now you're doing
1: the podcast? No, no, seriously, I, sincerely. I mean, you're you're doing really well. Like you're 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 taking your own ideas and your own internet project seriously as 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 you should if you believe in the things you say and you're getting results like you're really your your influence and and profile are you know they're growing and it's it's really cool to see so good for you yeah
0: thank you thank you it's definitely you know not not in little part uh you know your influence and stuff that i've learned you know just you know reading the forum and yeah chatting to people and seeing other people do it so it's it's really good so so really happy you're doing this
1: um well, I mean, it's worth pausing on because a lot of people think that it, it's like getting clout on the internet is like an accident. You know, you're just like, if you're, if you're this or that, you're that or something happens, but no, you can actually decide to develop your own intellectual project and be systematic about it. And you can actually succeed in growing your audience pretty rapidly. And you're a really good example of that. So, you know, you like you decided you wanted to do it. It's not like you just one day started getting... Like favored by the algorithm or something, you you decided you wanted to take your ideas more seriously and and start working on them more publicly, and 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 grow an audience. And you are doing a great job because you decided to and you put in the work, you know. So um, I just wanted to pause on that.
0: Yeah, I think you know there's there's a little bit of, of being deliberate in it. You know, it's kind of you tr- you try stuff and you see that some stuff works. Like for me, Twitter was really a surprise. Like I was not very, I didn't really expect to, you know, work on Twitter to write tweets to get that that much uh, of traction. So that was really surprising. And then, you know, people were asking me, you know, you know, why not do a podcast? So kind of from from one angle to the other, I was like, yeah, you know, this, this could be a, a real thing. It was definitely a proof of concept. But I feel like you need kind of a bit of a proof of concept or something because, you know, I, I see some people who are, you know, kind of trying to build everything from the bottom up, you know, this whole sprawling, you know, Substack podcast combo with, with all the newsletters and everything. Um, but they don't have a proof of concept yet. And I feel like a, a lot of people kind of that does a point of failure because you can't build everything at the same time. You need like that one thing that's going to be your anchor point. Or at least that was the case for me where I was like, yeah, OK, people like to hear this stuff. And, you know, i it's a, it's a bit of a, a market test.
1: I completely agree with that. That's good insight.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about what's coming up because you're you've got your your you know finger on the pulse of of culture of online culture you you talk to people who are involved you know, you know they're neck deep in the stuff every day um the idw or whatever is left of it is crumbling before our very eyes uh you know the, there's a handful of people going off on wild goose chases about postmodernism. There's those are people who are you know fawning over i don't know porn stars on their podcasts and you know this the 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 center doesn't hold <laughs> so i'm really curious what do you see? What's what's the face of the new thing that's coming up? What, what is it?
1: Yeah, I think the IDW would, is a bunch of kind of paranoid Gen Xers who are kind of very pleased with their newfound internet cloud, but they don't really know what to do with it. And I think they're a little too pleased with themselves. And then they also become kind of delusional, a little bit about their own power and influence, but then also delusional about the forces holding them back. And it's very funny how very smart people can devolve into what are really actually rather childish and, and immature ways of thinking namely around, you know, the man or the system and uh, holding them back and suppressing them. And so I I think it's been very funny and interesting to watch though, this IDW uh, phenomenon, just to watch it evolve. Like you give a bunch of talkative, Gen X men some internet clout and it doesn't go well it, it just doesn't go well so it, it's been an interesting thing to watch though obviously that's on the downhill that I don't think ever was going to be a I mean it was a cultural moment for sure and you know those guys have substantial audiences and so I'm not knocking them you know they, they can enjoy that and, and carry on but it's obviously not you know the 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 center of of the action anymore it's obviously on the down on the downslide. You know, you see this with a lot of Internet projects where it's like if you get really big, that's great. But then often what happens is they kind of cash out and then it's just like you can coast um, with rel- you, you can coast for a long time. If you have a large audience, you know, um, even though what's actually happening under the scenes is you're 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 on your way out. But it takes a long time to, to go to zero. Right. So you can coast and that's no problem. That's how I see the IEW. To me, the real the real cultural action is. Mostly with Gen Z internet edgelords. To me, to me, this is this is like if you want to know where the future is, look at the kids who are in college now who just they don't care about anything. And they like to go on the internet and, you know, what they call shitpost, post, whatever. It's kind of like the whole 4chan thing, except now it's more popularized among the cool kids who go to college, right? So it used to be 4chan was, you know, this this relatively obscure thing for you know relatively disaffected men, not completely, but that that was generally the that that was, to my knowledge, to 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 the degree we have any data at all about it, that that is uh, more or less accurate about what what the 4chan moment was. But that kind of attitude now has diffused a bit to like the average cool Gen Z college kid. Is basically in their own attitudes and lifestyle. They're like a four chan shit poster, and this is now cool among the cool kids in Gen Z uh, college circuits. And uh, to me, to me, that's fascinating, and not a lot of people know it because, uh, to be fair, these a lot of these kids are somewhat concerned about, you know, they don't want to get canceled or whatever, but they're not anxious about it. They just use a pseudonym <laughs> and then they fuck around and enjoy their life and and be like, you know, schizo on the internet. As a as a form of like cultural rebellion, there's a lot of that. But a lot of these people are very smart and very interesting. And uh, to me, that that's going to be like the next big wave of what's really hot and powerful in in the culture. That's one thing. But we could go on to a few other different pockets. But I don't, I don't want to lecture too much. Should I keep going? Or yeah, do you wanna- no,
0: no, keep going. Mm-hmm. This is all news to me. But also, I, I have noticed that among the, the the shit posters that I interact with, my some of my favorites now on on Twitter. They sometimes let slip that they're like twenty-one or twenty-two, and I'm like, "Whoa, I we're all millennials here." But yeah, it's it's definitely a thing.
1: Yep, yep. And then there's, uh, I mean, another wave I think to look out for, which is the wave I I, I guess I'm associated with, is young but middle-aged adults, you know, twenty in the twenties and thirties who have invested sometimes quite a lot in some kind of traditional institutionalized intellectual domain. But it's just increasingly clear to them that that is all bottoming out and there's really no opportunities for them there. And so what's happening is, you know, let's say you've done a PhD or maybe you just you've done a master's or whatever, you've you've put some amount of sunk cost into some kind of traditional prestige pursuit, whether that's in humanities and science and arts, whatever. There's a lot of people like that, who are very smart, they're disciplined, and they were kind of playing the prestige climb the ladder game. And they're just kind of realizing like, oh, this ladder goes nowhere. It's just like, I submit to extraordinary kind of self-censorship and arbitrary idiotic constraints on my work and what I'm capable of to get to some, you know, perch of power, but that perch of power isn't even there anymore. That's going to be a massive wave, uh, an increasing wave, I think. And I'm more, I'm even more certain of this one because I'm watching it. I'm close. I'm in this wave. I am this wave, frankly. Uh, Not to take too much credit, but I called the shot a couple years ago. I took my chances on defecting from the prestige track, and it's been nothing but good. It's been amazing. Everything I predicted would happen has been happening. It's awesome in every possible way, frankly. And now there's a lot of other people doing that, and I know that because a lot of them come to me, and we're figuring out all different ways to do that. from from different perspectives and different domains and different styles for different types of work, and I think that's going to be massive over the next ten years. I think you're going to see more and more people. Just like a, a, an analog here is, it's arguably the same phenomenon, but in a slightly different milieu. It, it's the New York Times journalists who go to Substack, right? They quit New York Times to write a Substack. That's essentially what I did with academia two years ago, and you're going to see more and more people doing it. You know, I think. I think Substack is probably an overrated phenomenon. Like, it's cool. It's good. Um, but I don't think Substack isn't going to be the the massive magnet that sucks up all of the energy. I think Substack is a kind of momentary trendy thing, which is it's like, it's cool. I'm not throwing shade at all. But I don't think it's not like I wouldn't expect in 10 years, every serious intellectual has a Substack. I think that's just like a momentary thing that has given people a certain kind of brand, a certain kind of license. Like once a few high power people do Substack, then all the other people are like, oh, this is legitimate. This is... In a way, in a way, there's a kind of um, magnet to Substack because it it allows people to do internet stuff without seeming like a loser, you know. But I think we're soon we're soon getting to a place where um, the best Substack people are going to basically have to build their own media companies, and then they're going to the best Substack authors are going to over time essentially become like what I'm doing with a kind of multi-channel uh, little personal media company because just because that's going to be the natural way of growing. That's my take on that. Um, So I see Substack as kind of a one relatively minor specific example within this larger movement. And I think, but I think the larger movement is going to be much bigger and, and and happening across different channels. You're already seeing people, um, you know, since I quit academia, a lot of people who are like quitting academia to go on the internet naturally reach out to me. And I can tell you there's, there's just a lot of them doing it. You might not have heard of them yet, but I suspect in 10 years, we will have enough data and and distance to realize that, oh wow, the you know, the twenty twenties were this period of mass defection from prestige institutions. It's definitely already started, but I think it's gonna keep continuing. I could go on, but maybe tell me what you're thinking about or what what of this interests you.
0: Yeah. I mean I'm I'm excited about this change because you know I'm I'm kind of trying to be part of it as well. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. That's essentially kind of the, the the tension that I've had with, you know, being on Substack, being on Patreon is essentially, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm living on borrowed time and on borrowed ground and, you know, just building something on someone else's platform. And uh, I think like a lot of solutions of, you know, uh, being the tech layer for people like me, Uh, And I know some people are doing this. Some people have pitched this to me. I haven't done, I haven't pulled the trigger yet because uh, what I like about subsec, what I like about Patreon is that it's, it's a trusted thing. People know what it is. They don't, they're not shy of putting their credit card information in there. they know this is a brand. Um, If I just add my own layer to it and say, okay, this is the Alex portal, just shove your credit card information in here. I feel like that would be, you know, that's, that's a bit of a thing. So I think I you know, I think there's some some accommodation to that, you know, private layer that people need to have uh, that I don't think is given yet. So that's kind of why I'm I would be hesitant to to build it myself. And also I'm a, a bit of a tech Philistine. So
1: Yeah, I know, totally. It makes sense. It makes sense. I just it, it makes sense for this moment in the transition, but it's not gonna be stable for a few reasons. One is that these uh, services actually do take quite a lot of money. Yeah. Substack it's about ten percent. Patreon I think it ends up being around there, maybe a little bit less, but those those really add up. And at a certain point, if you're really growing and you're making really good money, at a certain point, you're looking at your bank statements and you're like, oh, wow, I'm like leaving a lot of money on the table just by having these services perform these middleman functions that often don't really provide that much value. So I, I think it's, it's a it's a very delicate situation for them to be in. I don't think it's going to be very sustainable. And I think the issue you point out about feeling a little weird about asking someone for their credit card or whatever. I think that's just going to pass as this sort of thing becomes more normalized, right? It's like if people are happy to give their credit card to Patreon and Substack and this and that, at a certain point, they're going to be grateful to you for consolidating all those things into one thing. And if they're paying you through those other services, it means they trust you. So they're going to be happy to give you their credit card. I think think, honestly, they probably already would be. But like you said, people like you don't really want to take on that. Um, you know, challenge of like building that themselves. But honestly, it's not that hard. And I think, um, you know, as you as you continue to gain power, Alex, I think you'll eventually be looking, you know, for, for, for options that you control more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. I mean, I've, I've been keeping my, my feelers out for, for options, but also, you know, there's just uh there's inertia. Yeah. Which is never, never to be underestimated, which is also why I haven't yet installed Urbit, which is the thing I've seen you talk about lots lately and you're very. Uh... Well, Urbit
1: is sort of like the dark horse in all of this. <laughs> it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a moonshot. It's a long shot. It's like, I definitely wouldn't, you know, bet the farm on the whole world moving to Urbit in the next five years, maybe not even the next 10 years, I don't really know. But what I do know, what I'm very impressed um, by Urbit for is that it basically sees all of these problems way ahead. And it, it's basically this system that has been engineered to avoid all of these problems that we're talking about from the ground up. So in terms in terms of the attractiveness of the system, it's very impressive. And I so I definitely think, you know, you look at Bitcoin, you look at crypto, I do think right now that superior systems, like if you build them, they might seem obscure. People might you know, think it's crazy for a long time, but if it's a truly superior system that really repre- represents a way of fundamentally overhauling all of the problems of the current paradigm, I'm interested in those types of projects. So yeah, it's definitely a dark horse, but Urbit would basically solve a ton of these problems. So that, that's why I'm, I'm quite interested in it in, in increasingly. But it's a long shot.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like it just it it, it feels kind of like this, like you said, like the Star horse, like this. the The usability of it is is really it's a black box. You know, it's like you need to install this, you know, crypto thing on your computer, but I mean, you need to use command line to do
1: it, and you know, there's there's. You know. Well, they they've made that much simpler. They are doing very well on that right now. They're working hard on that, and you can now get a hosted Urbit where you don't have to touch the command line. You basically just sign up and log in like any website. So that is that is available now. If you wanted to play around with it, that's quite that's quite doable. And they are, you know, making some gestures to trying to support creators more. They the, so they I think they understand the the role that they could play in what we're talking about. So I would just stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. I, I think you know there's some chance it becomes more practical and more interesting and useful for people like you and I. And uh, it's it's an interesting concept for sure.
0: Cool. Um, I've also seen you talk to oh, is it Mike Elias uh, from Idea Market? I thought that was a, such a such an interesting project. Such a yeah, I don't I don't know. What's what's your, your vibe about that? Seems like a, a you know, kind of the ultimate way of monetizing yourself if you're just like this, you know, loose, loosely configured thinker.
1: It's an interesting concept for people who don't know what you're talking about. This guy Mike made a, a platform, which is basically it's kind of like a stock market for internet figures. And so it, it's a little complicated, but basically it allows people to more or less buy shares in someone. If they think that person's, you know, stock price is going to rise. If they trust that person, they might buy some shares. And what that does is it puts it puts it into a yield, a, a yield-bearing account. And I actually, so if they buy stock in you, you actually earn interest on that. The more people that buy your stock, the more interest you will earn. And if your stock price rises later they can they can cash out if they want to that kind of thing. So it's interesting. I think I'm agnostic about that platform in particular. I, I think he's cool, he's smart. It's it's an interesting project. I hope it succeeds. But with these sorts of uh, phenomena, you always have to look at the larger the larger question is always more interesting. You never know what individual platform or project is going to succeed. And what I but what I do think is extremely interesting and promising and all of that is I mean I do I'm I feel very bullish that crypto is going to make significant impact on how the intellectual life is measured and, and judged because the fact is right now we we live on an internet where lying is more or less incentivized. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's really no penalty for being wrong and there's no penalty even for lying really on on the public internet today. And so that's a massive, massive problem that is going to need to be solved. I mean, that's probably a billion multi-billion dollar market if you can basically solve the lying problem on the internet you know Mm -hmm. um and then it's also a matter of people want like humans humans more or less refer to social cues in their judgments right there's there's been a lot of research done on this like like, not to sound like an elitist or anything but a very very small number of people make their own independent judgments is, is just a basic fact and the overwhelming majority of people even people who you might think of as like fairly smart, fairly educated people, even most of those people generally make their judgments based on the judgments of the people around them who they respect. This has been very well documented. It's a very small minority that ignores all social cues and just using logic and reason alone uh, makes their own judgments. But it all trickles down from there, right? The, the, The cues come down from there. And so having reputable, trustworthy, systems that can actually tell you like an index that could tell you how trustworthy is alex how trustworthy is justin Um, if you could build a system that actually conveys that information it's extremely extremely valuable and and it's going to change everything because right now you get incentivized to lie but when we have that kind of system you get incentivized to tell the truth like imagine a world where like the more truth you tell the more credit you get and the more money you make. Imagine that world. We live in the opposite of that, right? So I'm fundamentally convinced that crypto is increasingly going to be the way that this happens. It has to happen. And crypto does have some interesting ways of doing it. We can talk, if if you're interested in that, we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, But prediction markets would be another one. And, And so there is a way of imagining that, you know, like you can imagine Twitter basically having a kind of prediction market layer where, imagine built on top of Twitter, every time you tweet something, you have to like put a little bit of money on it or something like that, Uh, imagine that. Or maybe you could tweet other things, but imagine every Twitter account, it became normalized to put small amounts of money on bets regarding everything that you say. And then you can imagine a kind of index page where I could basically look to see everyone's scores, right? I could see how often has Alex been right when she's actually put her own money on the line. So that's an easy way to imagine this materializing, but like, you know, the idea market idea there, there are many different ways of of trying to implement this. So I'm confident something like that is going to win and it's absolutely going to be revolutionary, but it's still early days and we don't know how it's going to look exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean that that sounds promising. It's kind of like the that that Robin Hanson idea of you know futarchy, just to, to organizing society by bets. I think it, there is some some truth to. I mean, there is some some a lot of value to it. But I could imagine that you know the concept of truth that you're kind of reifying with this type of stuff is pretty um, unilateral in a way. It works for some types of information, but. A lot of time truth is essentially what trickles down from what is high status what has prestige is true in in kind of that you know that that limited sense that we see now you know in a, there are many things that are very interpretable they're not really true in, in an absolute sense they're aligned with prestige um and some things are completely counter to prestige so they're false which is kind of the dynamic that we have now and in a way you know even when you say something that is you know maybe false in in a literal sense it might be true because it's aligned with you know, with, with prestige. So I, I think it's it's an interesting, there's a lot of philosophy, philosophical conundrums to be solved by this, but yeah, I, I don't know. It sounds like, um, I don't know if it's like the universal key to everything, I don't know. But-
1: oh yeah, sure, sure. There's lots of ideas and statements that can't be measured in that way for sure. But I would bet you that people who make accurate statements that are verifiable using prediction markets when they talk about the more abstract stuff that's harder to measure you're going to trust them them more right mm-hmm. so it's like you're totally right but people who are people who are caught being wrong multiple times you probably also shouldn't trust their like generalized life advice either right yeah. so that I mean, that that'd be my my answer. To that yeah,
0: yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like a, a bit of a social credit score. I mean, w- whatever you think about this, it's almost an, an inevitability to have something like this. I mean, you you already have it. You know, Twitter has it. Almost any platform you're in has a, a score for you.
1: Yeah. See, I'm really into social credit scores. I just don't want them run by like the CCP or whatever. I want I want really really accurate and kind of dem- like voluntarily managed social credit scores. So if the measurement is really good and accurate and people have the freedom to kind of enter into or enter out or exit those credit scores, then that's what I, that's what I want personally. I think, I think that's a really good thing. I think we need more measurement. Like one of the big problems we have in Western societies is people can be bad characters and they never get punished for it. Like this is a major problem to me, you know? So it's like, I think if you fuck up your life badly through being, Sinful in some kind of way, you should be somewhat shamed for that. Not brutally, and everyone should deserve a second chance, and we should pr- practice forgiveness and sympathy and all these things for sure. But we need a little bit of negative stigma against people who have bad ethics. <laughs> you know, it's like, but we've we've completely thrown that out the window. Um, so it's like, I definitely don't want a social credit system that's managed by the CCP. But I would love a system where, like, if you're poor because of no fault of your own then you get more sympathy than people who are poor because of actually making bad moral choices. I think I, I, think I would welcome a system that accurately measures that personally.
0: Yeah, I, I I kind of echo that as well, because that's to me, that's the key to scaling any society, you know, because we, we've had these incentive systems baked into communities back in the day where, you know, your literal neighbor would, you know, start wagging their finger at you and would tell on you in church and stuff like that. And it was oppressive and weird and, you know, but it worked. Uh, and that's kind of how we lived for, you know, since since the dawn of time
1: and and, and Totally. You need it. And and we now live in this situation where there are pretty hideous ethical crimes that have just been completely normalized. I mean, I, I'm sure you talk about many of these. And I mean, one that's popular to talk about right now is, of course, the normalization of sex work. I think I've heard you mm-hmm. you know, talk about that at some length. Yeah. But, you know, one that's so normalized, even the trad people don't really talk about it that much is. Adultery and cheating, just casual cheating or messing around. I am horrified by how normalized this is. Yeah. It, it seems like it's so acceptable now that, that even trad people don't complain about it or, or scoff at it. But I'm genuinely horrified when I watch any TV show, any movie. It's like some amount of adultery is is treated as completely fine, more or less, in, in almost all contemporary culture. But as far as I'm concerned, like as a married man, I, I wonder if you relate to this, Alex, but like – Cheating is, is a horrific crime. I mean it's it's a major it, it's a it's a serious serious violation not only of, of the other person but of yourself yeah. as well. I mean it, it it can destroy relationships truly and, and, and the violence that, that kind of that, that kind of transgression can inflict on the integrity and the harmony of a relationship is is can be earth shattering. And there's yeah. just like no representation of this anywhere. There's no punishment for cheating. So many people who we admire who are famous and influential, you know, there are well-documented cases of, you know, uh, infidelity or indiscretion in their life. And no one in our culture faults them at all. No one looks down at them at all for it. But to me, it's like if you're an an adult person and I admire you for any way for any of your achievements, but you also like cheated on your wife, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. And that, and it, that's how it should be because it's on its, it it should be at that level of unacceptable crime and just as you said if it was a small community it, it with that that really required loyalty and 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 strong relationships for that community to survive then that kind of thing would get its proper uh, stigmatization but in our culture many things such as cheating that's just one example completely go under under the radar. And our our moral systems and our society aren't even able to measure them or or sense them or feel them as, as 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 evils.
0: Yeah, but I I also think that you know whatever our moral system might be, uh, you know, in, in the wider world, people still feel these as moral injuries to themselves, and they accumulate these. And I really feel like you know, be it you know, sex work, be it, you know, adultery, be it just like completely, you know, abusing yourself with with drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. This stuff, you know, you know, this is not good for you. And even whatever BuzzFeed tells me today, it's like, oh, you know, this is absolutely chill. You should be chill about it. But there is there's a disconnect there. And, you know, you you know, when you fucked up. And uh, I, I see a lot of people kind of, you know, caught in that in that you know in that prison between okay people you know society tells me this is all okay and this is how it should be i have this tension inside that this is you know this is a destabilizing situation that i put myself in um you know but it's 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 not you can't really make peace with it until you've made peace with the fact that it's not good and i feel like society is really doing it people a disservice by not you know confirming that yeah this is shitty behavior you should you should be ashamed
1: Totally. I'm curious, <clears throat> Alex, do you have any other um, personal pet peeves when it comes to like uh, moral wrongs in society that have been normalized that other people don't talk about?
0: Pet peeves.
1: Um, Not pet peeves, but you know, like things that no one else talks about, but you think are super evil.
0: <laughs> super evil. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to say. I feel like, uh, to be honest, ca- casual sex culture, I think is really, really evil. Like, um, totally. yeah, I feel like, it it brings it it's it's completely not what it pretends to be. It is the complete, in a way, the complete opposite. It's it's the opposite of freedom. It's it's consistently terrorizing for for most people in it. Uh, it's terrorizing for even the people who are dropped out of it because they can't participate because they're so <laughs> terrorized by it. Like it's it's not a good. It's it's it encourages like these winner take all dynamics. It's really really you know yeah that that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves.
1: I completely agree. I completely agree. I'm, I'm somewhat ashamed to say I, I did a fair bit of sleeping around in my in my 20s. And I really do think it it, it, it t- really took something from my soul. It, it took a big chunk out of out of my soul. Like, uh, it, it still doesn't sit well with me. And I was never particularly, you know, bad in any way, but pretty just normal, I guess. And I do think that you do way more harm to yourself and and probably to others in ways you don't even know. And you know what I think, Alex, I wonder what you think about this is I sometimes wonder if the whole Me Too thing, the whole like moral panic that we're going through now where it's like every week there's a new allegation from some like person who did something bad like 10 years ago. How much of that do you think is actually just a kind of sudden awakening to the to the, to the the moral repulsiveness of all the casual sex everyone's been having in their youth? You know what I mean? It's like I, I almost think that sometimes because I sometimes... I don't know it's not it doesn't like haunt me or anything but i sometimes occasionally will just have memories of you know my 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 dissolute uh lifestyle in, in my 20s and i'll just feel a little gross you know like and like i said i don't even do anything that bad but just like you know girls i dated that i slept with but you know we never really like it never really turned into anything serious it was just kind of like you know you give away a piece of your soul to someone and they give away a piece of their soul to you and then you both just kind of like walk away and like shit on it. It's just like that kind of thing. I do look back on random examples of that and just feel kind of sad and like gross, you know? And I I have often wondered how much of like, you know, these women who like wake up and they're like, oh my God, I was raped 10 years ago. Sometimes I'm like, of course some of them are accurate and I would never like, you know, uh, dismiss that out of hand. But I do, given it's a kind of like trendy thing and some of the accusations are definitely uh, tenuous at best. I do sometimes actually wonder how much of that is actually a, a causal effect of just this generalized grossness um, of casual sex that we all participate in.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that there's there's a lot to that. And it's, it's also the fact that, you know, this, the idea that you have sexual freedom just means that you don't have any sexual norms. You know, you don't know how you should be behaving. So the fact that people behave awkwardly or, you know, have, weird, uncomfortable sexual encounters is that, you know, there's, there's no standard, you know, if the standard is anything goes and, and you also, you, anything goes for you and anything goes for me and consent is negotiated second by second, you know, there, there's absolutely no way that doesn't lead to a train wreck where at least someone, you know, there's always a power imbalance in these things. Someone's hornier, someone's more in love, someone's, you know, there's always that. And, uh, and, and also this thing, you know, I, I see this a lot when the kind of manosphere sort. Circles and the idea that you can negotiate a relationship from the start. Um, and, you know, people say, okay, you know, the, the girl said she didn't, she, she wanted no strings attached sex, because a lot of women do this, they try to kind of, you know, have have intercourse and and try to kind of lure guys into a relationship, and uh, you know they they say that in the beginning, um, and and a lot of these guys say, oh, okay, it's it's unfair that they do that, but it's also you know you you can't really know what the outlines of a relationship are going to be from the start, and it's not just you know it's not always like entrapment or anything, it's like. You know, things evolve, you know, there's, there's something happening when you're, when you have sex with someone that you can't really foresee, you can't really put in, in a term sheet, you know, the second you meet someone. So I feel like that, that part is completely ignored by this. It's like the idea that you're constantly, you know, consensually engaging with someone, you know, second by second is just nuts.
1: Totally. Can I tell you one more pet peeve of mine that I feel like is a, is a, a major social evil that goes totally unremarked? Yeah. It's so everyone, everyone in Western society is against um, like adults having sex with minors. But you know what? No one is against, which I'm told I'm very strongly against is minors having sex with each other. This should be this should be taken as seriously as minors having like think about this. We we all get horrified when we hear of a 16 year old having sex with a 20 year old. But we should be just as horrified by a 16 year old having sex with another 16 year old that th- this should be we sh- we should be terrified by this we should be we should be absolutely up in arms about that and i'm i'm personally of the opinion that sex should be illegal until you're 18 straight up because the amount of eth- the amount of uh kind of spiritual damage that young people can do to each other is at least as great honestly as as the, the the spiritual or physical or emotional damage that a slightly older person can do so i think that's super underrated in terms of the the actual ongoing Ethical evils that that permeate our society uh, is is basically young kids um, mistreating each other, breaking each other's hearts when they're so impressionable and they're so emotional and sensitive. I think I think that's that's a real shame. And yet, there's virtually no constituency that is that is yeah. that is in any way worried about um, you know the, the spiritual harm that sixteen year olds do to other sixteen year olds. Yeah, so that's my other that's my no, other I, uh, I, hill that I would like to go yeah, on. Yeah, I
0: think it's a, it's a I think it's a worthy hill as well because I mean I when I had my first boyfriend I was like 15 he was 17 and going on 18 and I've always felt like okay you know if things are going to become illegal you can't you can't date me now because you're you're an, you're an adult and we're just joking about that and really like things kind of felt a bit dangerous once he turned. 18. And it was, it was very, a very weird situation. I mean, obviously, there, there's a reason to have these delimitations, and you kind of have to draw the line somewhere. But in terms of, you know, philosophically looking at this, yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's a very equivalent
1: situation. Oh, that's interesting. Is that your husband or that was a former boyfriend? That
0: was a former boyfriend. Yeah. I mean, my, my husband, I, you know, I wish I was that trash. Okay, no, I, I, I met my husband. So
1: how, how did you, how did you handle that? Did you just agree to not have illegal sex or like, Well, obviously you don't have to share if you don't, but you brought it up. I I mean how did you decide? We were just
0: panicked. I don't think we've we've handled it in any in any logical way or anything. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't agree to do anything. We're just like, oh my God, you know, we need to be really secretive about this stuff. But I mean we were we were in this relationship like a year before he turned 18, but
1: yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that shows that shows the, the the nonsensical nature of it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a weird one. It's kind of like your 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 famous Greta Thunberg <laughs> um, tweet with uh, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> which I, I do I, I have to agree with. I mean, people obviously always only take the, the the negative side of that, which is you know obviously that you know people should be sleeping with Greta Thunberg, but that's not the point you are trying to make. And I think that's a a good one. But yeah, it's of course not
1: no. <laughs> All the smart people, all the smart people get it and agree with it. And the rest of the world that's retarded uh, is up in arms about it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Just a, just parenthesis in case, in case you're one of the few people, the two people who have not read this tweet, it's uh, essentially, you know, comparing the case of, of, you know, the whole world bowing to the geopolitical musings of this one, whatever, 15, 16 year old Swedish girl. Uh, and then also not, you know, not understanding that, you know, children at 16 can't give consent or teenagers at 16 will not give sexual consent. And, you know, people, you know, freaking out about that layer. Of- I mean, I,
1: I can cite it verbatim because it's still it's it still gets brought up on my feed by haters to this day. So yeah, I say it verbatim. so It's a good tweet that I can, I can cite it by heart for people who didn't hear what I said. It was I said, if you believe that a 16 year old has the maturity to guide global policy making, then you really can't object to Jeffrey Epstein paying 16 year olds for sex. That's what I said, and
0: yeah, fair enough. We have
1: some serious, we have some serious knots in our kind of so in, in our ethical in the ethical systems that dominate society right now. We have some some very sharp contradictions that really don't add up. And if you put if you kind of put them together in a way that kind of shows them, uh, yeah, people get super pissed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's, I feel like, you know, the, the backbone of, of our. Current social illusion is this idea of you know the the self-making self the the perfect individual that you know can is always consent-based. They always you know there's some little you know homunculus behind the eyes that's pulling the strings that's deciding you know moment for moment exactly what's going on and what they want to do and what their identity is, what their preferences are, uh, and people don't want to be slaying that that sacred you know that sacred calf. That's that's the one thing. So anything that goes against this idea of you know complete um self-creation every moment then there it's gonna it's gonna clash with uh, with that information yeah totally so i wanted to also ask you um about the internet because you've been you've been a little bit critical about the internet (laughs) recently i mean you're you're a you're a creature of the internet You've, you've built a platform on the internet um uh, and you've you've uh, you've um put it in a in a really nice way like how how can you use the internet how can you be active on it without you know having it steal your soul or you know is is that possible to to have it as a tool rather than have it as a demon?
1: well I think that yeah the trick is and and this is what most people are intuitively realizing as we speak and it is what more and more people are doing naturally but it is essentially the the solution is. To if if you have real ideas that you want to develop in the world and you want to shape the culture, you know if if you do have this kind of calling to to develop a long term intellectual project, then intrinsically yes, you want to be in the mix. You want to be you know shaping society and and you want your ideas to to have an impact on the world. So you do want to be active on the internet. You do want to what they call grow an audience, which is just a kind of vulgar way of of putting that you want your ideas to to. Uh, come to fruition in the world, to have influence in the world. And so I don't think there's any question of, of, you know, getting off the internet or going into the woods or something like that. But what I think you want to aim for is a kind of system where you are protecting a ton of free, quiet time to do the high quality, original focused, patient work of genuine thinking, reading and writing, uh, separated from social opinion completely, and then you want to take that work that's isolated and and protected from social opinion, and then you want to build a system where you, yes, you you drop that onto the internet in some kind of systematic way uh, to to influence the world and to share your ideas. That's the ideal. and But the question is, how do you do that? And what are the pitfalls? Because there are many pitfalls. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have today is that all of these websites we use are designed to make us get sucked in. And so this is reaching terrible proportions. It's like, I don't know if you relate to this, but we're now reaching a point where even if you're relatively disciplined like me and you're relatively like, I don't even, I don't even go on Twitter or Facebook or whatever for fun. Like I'm not even that type of person who is very pulled into it. But when I go onto Twitter to like share a few things or something like that, I find myself like I'm like still on it an hour later, or the worst thing is when you're just switching between things like, okay, I have a new blog post, I'm going to post, I'm going to share it on Twitter, I'm going to maybe write about it a little bit on Twitter real quick, then I'm going to share it on, you know, Facebook, or whatever. It's like, you try to do these short, discrete things, and it takes 15 minutes of switching costs. You know, there's research on this where you when you switch tasks, you know, your cognitive, it takes you cognitively about 15 minutes to even get uh, settled into the new task, basically. So you're paying a extraordinary cognitive tax just simply being on these websites at all, trying to even, even if you're in this very very controlled and patient way, like I'm talking about, even in the best of cases, you're you're paying huge cognitive tax and switching costs. And then you're also getting sucked in because the websites are literally designed to make you stay there, right? So it's really, I think, reaching, I think it's reaching a, a kind of critical threshold. I, I think it's becoming so bad. And now there's also the the proliferation of platforms, which is another massive problem, right? So I'm sure you've felt this before. It's like, oh, Clubhouse. Now everyone's on Clubhouse. And look, on Clubhouse, if you talk for five hours a day every day, you can get to like a million followers pretty quickly. And it's like, if you're trying to, you know, develop a, a public intellectual life, that's very tempting, right? You do kind of feel like, oh, maybe I should be on Clubhouse. Maybe like, But then after Clubhouse, it's another platform, right? So there's this constant kind of frenetic, energy and proliferation of platforms that is constantly pulling you from one thing to the next. And so what do you do? What do you do about this? I do think that if you want to develop a kind of independent intellectual life in today's world, especially if you're working outside of institutions, which means, you know, the internet is your institution in a way, then I do think we need to be super serious and systematic about this. It's not like this is not a minor question. This is not like a minor lifestyle question. This is like one of the questions. Like, what do you do? What should you invest your time in? What should you not invest your time in? And I'm increasingly of the view that the solution a lot of people are naturally gravitating to, which I think is generally, you know, directionally correct, is you have a private community that is very high quality, that has similar aligned goals as you, but you don't want it to be ideologically captured. And that's one that's one of the biggest pitfalls. I think because a lot of people know, you know, you can find DM groups and Slack groups and this and that. There, there's a lot out there. Uh, people listening to this have probably are probably in a few different kind of you know informal internet private communities. The I find the problem with those is that they're often they naturally become kind of ideologically captured, whether they want to or not. They just become it becomes like an in group making fun of the out group. In my experience, almost all of those groups generally devolve into that kind of um, spirit, and I think that's generally a that's that's a spirit of resentment, and that's a, that's its own kind of capture. Which I think, if you want to do long term intellectual work, that's as that's as bad a situation and as 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 serious a failure mode as any. You know, being being ca- being caught up in a, in, in an overly um, you know in group kind of we're smart and all and and them you know they're they're dumb. That that's really bad. And so, in my experience, a lot of DM groups and private groups go to that. So the whole idea behind Indie Thinkers really is this thesis, basically, that increasingly, the world is moving to the internet is obviously moving to internet communities to private communities, because the public web is, is so chaotic, and cognitively bad in many ways. And then but then the question is, how can you engineer that in that in that uh, private community, in a way that actually generates independent thought rather than kind of group hive mind thought. And so yeah, that's what I, that's what I'm trying to do. That's my wager with indie thinkers. And it there is a kind of larger kind of theoretical I guess hypothesis um, behind it, but I think other people are going to do the same thing. Other pe- other people are going to figure this out. So that's where I think things are going, and that's frankly one of the reasons why I'm I'm a little bit more bullish on Erbit than I think the average person, because they kind of have this um, architecture that they've been working on for a very long time, which is extremely systematic and sophisticated, which goes in this direction of extremely robust private communities that own all of their data and can't be censored and can't be and can't be um, you know in any way uh, meddled with really and it's for people listening by the way uh, urban's probably very obscure but um it's not like one of these there have been many kind of alternative platforms right that have arisen people think of mm-hmm. gab or parlor or whatever but mm-hmm. all of those fail because they're trying to play on the normal internet that's the problem with all those platforms right parlor can get kicked out of the app store whatever um these gab can have their like a bank account shut down whatever. Uh, Urbit is like a different kind of internet. It's literally a different type of networking model. Urbit doesn't compete with Twitter or Facebook. It competes with the internet as we currently use it. It's a different kind of internet. So like I said, it's a long shot, but it is kind of designed from the ground up to be um, uh, impervious to to these problems. And it really goes in a a radically kind of community-based way. So that's that's my directional hypothesis uh, for, for the near future. Everything will increasingly go to private communities. And... And uh, then we will still be coming up for air on the public internet, but really just to really just to post things, you know? So, I I mean, I I guess my final little bit of a concrete um, answer to your, to your question is I think increasingly like for people like you and people like me who have a bit of influence, we have a kind of clear brand. People know us for certain ideas that we develop over time and, you know, we have fans or whatever. And, and an audience who values us and respects us, but we're still relatively small you know people like you and I are are still relatively small. To me the, the next big move that I think people like you and I need to really focus on is is finding a way to more or less hire someone to do the, the, the you know frontline work of actually going on Twitter and sharing things and posting things because I do think it's such a bad it's every time I log into Twitter or Facebook or whatever, it's such a cognitive risk both to my my thinking like it warps your brain it makes you think whatever is popular you know and it and it incentivizes you to think whatever is popular and and then just the switching costs and 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 so on so like my my real dream would be that it's something like as indie thinkers grows or and it's not just about indie thinkers it's like everyone can have their own indie thinkers alex you could build your own indie thinkers someone else could build their own indie thinkers whatever um it's like people like you and I will I, I think over time realize that we need to focus more and more on just quiet work of reading, writing, and developing our own thoughts. And we are gonna to need to insulate ourselves as much as possible from the public web. And, but but we'll want probably some kind of um, uh, support system, whether that's like other people in the community or people in your audience who can kind of do that for you. Um, and ideally not to get like too futuristic or whatever, but again, I think crypto really is interesting in this regard because what crypto rep- What crypto? one of the things that crypto offers and it's increasingly clear that, uh, to me anyway, that crypto is is definitely taking over. I, I, I think it, there's, it's hard it's hard to argue against crypto being here to stay. And you know, I think I think I think it, it's increasingly evident that that it really is a kind of world historical uh, paradigm shift. The, what what crypto allows is increasingly sophisticated and fluid forms of of value sharing, basically. So you can imagine a situation where like. Alex has her own private community of people, of her fans and audience and, and you know, interlocutors and collaborators where like, Alex, you don't even need to go on Twitter or you don't even need to go on Facebook or whatever to get the word out about what you're doing. You just focus on doing the highest quality work you can insulated from this chaotic mind warping uh, public internet and your fans or supporters can go and then spread your word, share it with their friends or whatever, and actually in a way get paid for it. Like they can be part of the unit. So it's, it's a matter of what I'm really driving at here is that what people call private communities, that, that's kind of a corny, like um, innocent sounding name for it. what it really is, is turning individual creators into collective organisms. So like I, I think successful creators will basically just create their own social organism where they and their fans slash audience members slash interlocutors or collaborators are like one um, unit. And all the people in the unit have a share in the success of the unit. And they will kind of tell their friends themselves because they want to, A, because they believe in the work and they find it worthy of sharing. But two, also because, B, also because they will, in a way, share in the upside. So I think where we're going is essentially individual creators are gonna become kind of collective business operations, more or less, where where fans become stakeholders and it, yeah, that's that's kind of the long. That's like the, the really long term. That's some that's somewhat futuristic, but there are a lot of indications that this is kind of already happening, and I think crypto is going to make it uh, increasingly uh, possible and and smooth to do that. So yeah, I, I envision a world where people like you are increase people like you and I are increasingly out of the day to day tasks of like typing things on Twitter, or sharing things on on whatever. And we're just doing high quality, original thinking, reading, writing, and and developing ideas and speaking, maybe recording podcasts and stuff like this, still making videos. Um, but we'll be with, increasingly withdrawn from the public web in one way or another, um, whether that's through a paradigm changing platform like Urbit, or it's through a major shift towards deep community, where the community kind of does the sharing for us. That's my, that's my kind of longer theoretical perspective.
0: Yeah, I, I, I like the direction of it uh and it's actually like a thing that i've been feeling as well i mean you know the 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 twitter brain uh has has really has really shredded my my long like you know my attention span you know f- forming complex sentences is a bit harder than it used to be like it's you can feel it and I, re- I always liken it to smoking. Like the the level of addiction that I had to, switch to Twitter, it's, it's been, I, I don't think smoking's been that bad, really. Like,
1: it's, I suspect it's particularly bad for you because you've been so good at it, right? Like I, I I would be curious to hear like your experience because you really started tackling Twitter hard. It was very clear you made a conscientious decision to I'm gonna, I'm gonna attack Twitter, I was I'm gonna really write on Twitter, I'm, I'm gonna win this Twitter game. There's and a... And you succeeded you were able to like grow an audience quite fast and and it looks like you still are so you you clearly you know decoded the, the the code you hacked the code you figured it out and you put in the work and and now you have like a um i i would say you probably have a very good finger on the pulse of like the the, the how the twitter game works do you find that like it's spe- is it especially bad for you like do you are are you struggling with do you feel like your brain is being captured and you're 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 having a hard time thinking outside of the terms of what plays well on Twitter or how are you, how, what are yeah, you noticing?
0: That, there's, there's that as well. Um, I feel like there's kind of a feedback loop with it because I started getting more and more addicted to it. The better I was at it. I didn't really know I was good at it until <laughs> yeah. I was getting lots of followers and people were sharing my stuff. And I was like, Whoa, I'm really good at this. So it kind of made me want to be on it, especially because I've been, you know, I've been in this COVID bunker for the last year and I'm like, you know, you get this flood of, you know, social proof and you're like. Yeah, this is really good. So continue, do, do more, do more, do more. And, um, but yeah, there's that layer of it as well, you know, not only kind of the physiological layer where it literally shreds your, your brain. Um, but it feels more and more like I'm in these switching phases, you know, like, like you were saying, you know, the, the 15 minute switching phases, but it's almost all day where I'm just kind of like, it's like moving my brain through molasses to do big chunks of work. It really has become, quite hard it used to be a bit more you know smooth to just say okay now i'm setting aside an hour to do this task and then i feel like i need to really you know clench my brain to jump into that you know put on seven pomodoros or whatever and to to actually get there cool yeah, a little, a little technical hiccup, but um, we're back. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is marriage. Uh, you're you're a married man, and you've been talking about marriage uh, in the past, and you know so have I. And you know we're we're relatively new to the game, but I think you know we've got a little bit of experience with it. Um, you know, tell tell me about this uh, this this marriage maximalism uh, of yours.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot I could say here. I, I do have a lot of thoughts on marriage, but I would say the main talking point I'm kind of most interested in right now is I really think young men should be should marry her already, basically. that That's kind of the message I, I think I'm going to be working on a little bit more because in my case, I have a somewhat unique story in that. I mean, I'm 34 and I've been married for almost eight years now, which, which actually means in our generation, I married relatively young. I got married when I was uh, about 27 and nowadays that's actually getting married young. So I only got married, I shouldn't say only married, that sounds bad, but we got married uh, in some part because of, we we had this kind of outside uh, forcing function. We had this exogenous kind of moment of decision that, that made the marriage question more salient. Uh, and more urgent many people don't have that kind of exogenous forcing function in my case it was getting getting a job in England um, I got a good academic job in England and I had to you know I uh, was obviously eager to move there to to accept this this you know very good job that I was you know very lucky to get and so I tried originally to get my girlfriend <laughs> Aria a visa and uh, it was rejected and we kind of talked to the lawyer and, and it was it was basically clear that the only way she would be able to come is if we were married and so we had to think and talk you know it was and i mean i i, I pretty much knew i wanted to marry her within like six months of dating her so i knew that in my heart of hearts but i never would have got around to doing it <laughs> really you know like if there wasn't a, a a a reason to force the decision you know what i mean and I, I think it's the same for her. I think I think she she would say the same more or less in her own words. But so basically, this kind of taught me, and and it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. I consider it this like mirror. I consider it a miracle. Basically, I feel like um, it's just this extraordinary blessing that this outside circumstance just basically forced me and my girlfriend to grow up faster than we would have otherwise. Because I know for sure, if there wasn't that forcing function, I would have been just like all the other men my age, and I would have you know probably dated her for like six years and then. Uh, eventually, you know, maybe she gets pregnant. Maybe she like forces me to marry, you know, whatever. It's like, that's how, th- that's how people do things nowadays. And I know that would have been me. I'm not, I'm not in any way superior to this kind of uh standard man. It's not like I knew something or saw something, or I was like trad genius or something like that to get married relatively young. No, it was, it was this external shock that forced us to decide basically. And, and um, I'm so grateful to that. And I feel like it basically fast forwarded me in life. It, it, it gave me uh, so much more. It opened up this whole new, superior way of thinking and being and living that is just more wholesome and more, also more challenging. Though in many ways, I mean, it's very, very hard being married. It's it's extremely hard. So I understand why people don't exactly want to jump into it. There are a lot of risks involved, and you know. Uh, so basically, I have this unique personal experience where I both deeply understand why men my age don't do this or young men don't get married if they don't have to, but I also. I feel obligated to kind of like spread the good word in a way because I've been blessed by this miracle that made that basically I feel like it saved me like eight years of my life that I would have otherwise mm-hmm. pissed away probably just dating and whatever. Um, so I feel like so blessed by that miracle that I feel somewhat called to you know write down what I've learned, write down what I've what I've what I've noticed, and I really want to kind of send the message to men in their twenties, like dude, if you're dating for more than a few months and she doesn't annoy you, and she's hot and cool, like, just marry her, dude. It's like, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe not so radical as that, but something like that is kind of the message that I think because, yeah, it's like people just, the, the contemporary kind of liberal norms around, you know, freedom of choice and, you know, it's like we want everything to be chosen uh, ends up meaning that we just spend so much time waiting for like the perfect thing. That before you know it, you're 40 or 50, and you know, you've just dated a bunch of people and you have nothing to show for it. It's a real tragedy. So I, I think on some level, it is as simple as you have to just suck it up and marry her already. Like just do it. Um, no one's perfect. N- you know, you're as imperfect as she is. And if she's willing to marry you, you should, you should consider yourself very lucky because you're probably fucked up in many ways, right? So it's like, that's, that's, that's my, that's, I think I want to write a book about marriage and I think it's going to be around this. It's going to, you know, i the provisional title is just marry her because I think that's essentially what it boils down to. It's like, it, it, it's a leap of faith. It doesn't have to be like fully, fully rationally proven to be the best choice for you because there are certain things in life that don't, that, that don't boil down in that way. And there are certain experiences and benefits and values in life certain experiences, certain parts of the human condition that you're never going to access if you see it incorrectly as this rational calculus, where if you see it as a rational calculus, you're just never going to get to it. And you're going to deny yourself whole pockets of human existence that are, that are very good and very, very necessary and very, you know, superior to, to otherwise. And so I do see it as on some level, a kind of, I wouldn't call it irrational decision, but I would call it a kind of extra rational decision. It's a, it's a leap of faith. And it will make you better. It will make your life better. And uh, you might not know that, but on some level, you have to just just do it. And I think if you're dating someone for more than, you know, I would say certainly if you're dating someone for a year, if you can date someone for a whole year and you're happy and th- they don't say or do anything regularly that truly like pisses you off and that you really, really irks you um, painfully. Well, first of all, if that's the case, you shouldn't be dating them for a year first of all, but second of all, assuming, assuming like your things are, things are harmonious, you know, you're attracted to her and she's a good char- She has a good character and she doesn't do anything to like truly upset you or, or piss you off or irk you on a really regular basis. Then if you've been dating for a year, it's time to get married. Just do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. That's kind of my message.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I resonate with this message. I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a good message. And I think there is hope for this message uh, in, in the way of, you know, more high profile people adopting it. Because if you look at what the message has been around marriage and around, you know, long term committed monogamy, not cheating, you know, committing yourself to, to marriage, like as, as a covenant as something that, you know, you really mean it, that it's going to be for, for your whole life um it's not been good like at all the you know media depictions it's all these you know boomers airing their neuroses about you know whatever daddy issues they have and you know telling them that you know this is this is hell on earth you know don't don't get married don't have children but i think like the tide is shifting now and as much as people you know like to hate on the trad larpers you know i guess i'm engaged in that a little bit myself it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's good to be out there to be doing something wholesome to be doing something, you know, that that adds pro social value to society, because when you're in a marriage, it's like, yeah, it's good for you. It's good for your family. It's good for the wider society. It's kind of these like Petersonian concentric circles, you're really doing the world a solid by, you know, having kids, you know, being, you know, being a responsible person and building something together with someone that's not just, you know, I and a Pissing yourself at 4 a.m. in some in some dingy dive bar with you know the six six date this week, you know this is just one one alternative timeline. But there's there many ways in, in which you could you could be doing something shitty. Uh, but yeah, I feel like you know the the more visibility this gets and the more high profile and kind of like prestige stuff this attracts, you know, the more people with clout can can do this, then the, the better it's going to be. We're we're at the bottom of this hill, but you know, I think I think it's getting there.
1: I totally agree. I completely agree. I mean, I could go off on so many so many other points that I think are are very good points, which is why I think I need to write I need to write this book, but one that comes to mind is that you also like men w- will find, I believe, that aging kind of sneaks up on you. It's this gradual thing where it's not like you see it coming in advance that your you know your your looks will decay your your attractiveness will decay that it's a natural part of life and I have found that my 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 looks and my my general kind of you know physical attractiveness have even though I take care of, I take fairly good care of myself. I'm 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 fairly fit and and in shape and I, I eat well and all that, more or less, you know, not not a saint or anything, but I have found that, you know, I'm not as handsome as I used to be and it snuck up on me faster than I expected. And it's it's very hard to be aware of it. It's like, I think that's something people need to keep in mind because, you know, you might be 27 and you might be in great shape. You might look really handsome and you might be able to get as many girls as you want. But, you know, when you're 33, you know, it, you might not be as handsome as you currently are and you might not realize it until it's too late. And um, it's just one of the many reasons why I feel very blessed that I got married relatively early because, um, yeah, I, I, you know, that that's the kind of thing that can sneak up on you. So I could say I could say much more, but I don't know how how, how much you want to go into it.
0: Yeah, no, I think that I I love this subject. I feel like you know too too few people are talking about, it and finally I've got the uh, <laughs> tread tread larper to myself <laughs> to talk about it with. So I'm like I'm super super excited to chat about this stuff. But I feel like you know the the. Um, the declines, not only in, in youthful aesthetics, but also in youthful energy are surprising to people like, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of people talk about, you know, how women they hit the wall, you know, it's like, oh, you're super hot. And the next day you look like, you know, a, a hag. And, you know, that's, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It happens a little bit earlier for women, obviously. Uh, but I feel like it happens to everyone. And I feel like even for, for guys who think, OK, you know, I'm just going to play the field for 20 years and, you know, then I might settle down with some woman from Southeast Asia or whatever you know fantasy idea you have you just won't have the the energy to commit to create a marriage you know even with kids without kids that it takes if you're if you're just leaving this to the last point plus you've literally been you know probably been dating everyone under the sun and that leaves its mark you know it's it's really i think the the whole pair bonding thing is is real um, but I think it's not just, you know, everyone talks about women, but I really do think men men have this as well, especially if they've been really successful with, with women where they're like, okay, I need to settle down. Which one's it going to be? Well, it, she has to have this laundry list of qualities that, you know, includes all the qualities of all the women I've ever been with. So yeah, good luck in finding her because that's just not there.
1: Totally. Completely agree with all of that. And I think there's also an issue where as you get older, you get more stuck in your ways. This is, this is well-known. This is well-documented both in, you know, kind of oral, oral, oral knowledge, but it's also well-researched. It, it's very true. You become less, you become less cognitively fluid. And this becomes a mar This becomes a problem for marriage because at a certain age, you don't really want to negotiate or compromise your life with someone else. You know what I mean? But when you're young, this kind of refers to what you were saying before about energy, you know, when you're young, you know, you have more passion, you have more kind of, um, eagerness and, and, and willingness to, to find an arrangement that works for both of you. And then you can both kind of get settled into that. And, and, you know, if you inevitably get stuck in your ways, to some degree, you can get stuck in the ways that you have negotiated with your wife that works for both of you. Whereas I think what happens is, you know, if you don't get married until you're like 35 or something like that as as a man, well, by the time you're 35, you have certain expectations about what life should look like, or what your everyday life should be or feel like, that are not going to really realistically fit into, a, you know, marrying and moving in with someone else on a, on a long term basis, right? So it's like you can kind of you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot by giving yourself too much freedom and too much control for too long. Whereas if you just gave up that freedom, that obviously you're not giving up all your freedom, but you're just you know, significantly curtailing your own freedom by merging your life with someone else. If you do it earlier, when you're more cognitively fluid, it, it it will work and it can be okay. And you can adapt. Whereas at a certain age, you might be not able to adapt to merging your life with another person. So that that's another reason against waiting too long, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, that's for sure a, a, a major one. And I feel like, you know, people, people definitely underestimate what it, what it how much freedom you get once you get married and I feel like you've made this point before but like you know your your life changes in the sense that you know it it sounds a bit weird because you know people people now they live for the idea of you know of novelty and they're like okay you know if I can't have novelty like what 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 is what is life good for but Kind of reduction of complexity is also an important factor you know you you know who to trust you have your you have your rock you know you know you you're, you're building a home you know you you have direction like you know simplifying you know d de- detangling your brain and that in that way is really a load off of, of you once you're once you're married like okay this is my person this is my home these are my children if 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 you you have them but yeah it's 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 you know and it it opens you up to do stuff like you know I wouldn't have been able to do this podcast if I was like neurotic living in a you know lonely dingy apartment somewhere in a big city like no way
1: It's so true it's it's really really hard to focus on important long-term projects when you're dating around I completely agree with that because when you're dating around you're incentivized to be doing what's cool what's hip you know um and really valuable worthwhile projects usually aren't you know they're they're not very interest they're not very impressive for a long time you know for a long time it's just plotting away you know in obscurity and building something meaningful and and you know you, when you're dating you never want to show up to a first date and tell your date that you're working on some obscure long-term project that doesn't really have any results doesn't really have anything like um that they can relate to or be impressed by you know what I mean so it really dating incentivizes Kind of short-term bullshit types of you know uh, accomplishment behavior, whereas marriage incentivizes. It allows you to do kind of weird, long-term things that are really important to you that that you really that you really believe in, but they maybe aren't going to show results for for a very long time because um, you don't need to impress anyone in the short term. Uh, you 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 become more concerned about making a really long lasting impact in in a way that people will really respect and you can focus on 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 that long term battle because you already have the buy-in of your of your partner. So I completely yeah, I completely agree with that.
0: Yeah, I feel like um that's kind of one one of the tensions that I have uh when I think about, you know, kind of polyamorous marriage and things like that. Like I feel like you're considering, you know, you you're essentially you keep dating within your marriage and you never get that complexity reduction. You're inviting complexity back in. Only that's just one dimension of it. You know, there's like you, you posted something about step parents and that was kind of like this this horrifying hair raising statistic, which I think adds to the the polyamory combination as well. Cause you know, you have one step parent is already like a, a nightmare scenario of have sixteen of them in a commune, then okay, that might be even more intense. So yeah, oh, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean I have friends who are poly. I have friends who are married in poly, but like I, you know, so I'm not throwing shade on anyone in particular, but I, I'm personally the very idea of a poly marriage or an open marriage. It's, it's a contradiction. It's you, it's marriage is all or nothing. You're either all in 100% or you're not married, frankly. So that's how I think about it. Not to say, you know, people can have their own arrangements. And if you're happy, you know, if you're, if you're in a, legal marriage with someone and you're also both dating people and you're happy, then, you know, go to town. I'm not, I'm not here to tell anyone that that they don't understand themselves or something like that. But all I'm saying is whatever that is, it's not marriage. It's something else because marriage is, it's sacred. It's a sacrament. It's, it's, it's truly, it's, it's like you're either completely bound and all in on each other or you're not. And if you're not, then you're not, you're not really married is how, is how I think about it. And frankly, I think all of the most impressive and important benefits and, and gains that come through marriage—what makes marriage so special and amazing and, and wonderful—you really only get them if you're truly all in. That—that's something that I, I've observed and that's something that I—it's I, a—it's a deep conviction of mine. If you're even ninety-nine point nine percent in, there are there are aspects of marriage that aren't going to open themselves up to you. There there are parts of that that aren't going to ever ever come to fruition to you. You have to truly with your heart and soul be 100% in no matter what, come hell or high water till death do us part. I will go down with the ship if need be. That's what unlocks all of the magic of marriage. And anything short of that, you're not even really going to be experiencing what marriage really is, I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree with that and I feel like a, a lot of, you know, what you hear now with, you know, high divorce rates and, you know, people either not getting married or, or splitting up, I feel like it's it's, you know, it's it's because you're you're not really seeing it as a covenant, you see it as a lifestyle choice. It's like it's just a, a you know, friends with benefits with more benefits with extra benefits. And then we have a big party and then we live together. And, you know, when, if you, if you ever step on my toes, you know, I, I maybe give you three strikes, but then you're out. Um, and, and this is kind of the relationship model that I see with, with most people. Um, I mean, this, this infinite optionality seems to be, you know, eating away at, at, you know, the, the, the most precious things in life. And I think it's the same thing with, with, you know, the fertility crisis with children as well. Like the idea is like, you don't want to make a choice that's going to curtail your optionality forever. Like I see this is, this to me is the the main thing that I see people talk about, you know, why my friends, they don't have children. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 32 now I'm going to have a child at 32 and my friends think I am completely insane because they're like, what's what gives i'm like well you know i'm not getting any younger that's for sure so you know this is the time to do it um but it's still and i feel like this is another really big dimension to it like there's almost ostracism for people who decide to to you know get married and and do this i don't know i feel like uh, you know it's it's hard to to make the jump because you you will be isolated you know it's it's you know the community's not there
1: Right. Well, the trick is finding other married people with kids and making them your social set, but that's increasingly difficult, right? Because nowadays, I don't know about you, but it's like a lot of the people I hang out with are my age and they're not married and they don't have kids. So it's like, uh, it can be somewhat challenging to find that, that group. But I think that is basically the solution to what you're talking about. You need to just basically start to switch your friend group away from the single, the single people with no kids and just finding other married couples with kids to be friends with. I I mean, that's something that I'm like, I still love my friends who are single. I'm not throwing shade on anyone, but, uh, I mean, especially what, I mean, we don't have kids yet, so we can still kind of, you know, be in this milieu, but we already kind of feel it as a little bit of a, a little bit of a conflict, a little bit of, um, you know, it doesn't quite feel quite right that all of our friends are most of them. We have a few friends who are married and have kids, but, um, I think once we have kids for sure, we're going to try to like make significant investments in just finding new friends who have kids because it's just very hard to relate. Otherwise Um, for those of you, anyone listening, who's my friend who's single, I'm not going to like ditch you. I'm not saying that, but uh, you know, I need more married people with kids in my life.
0: Yeah. Have kids, have kids, Justin's friends who are single (laughs) pronto.
1: Yeah. It's also like have kids because I mean, I don't, I, I don't have any, this might be too much information, but um, I, I mean, I don't have any real anxiety or anything, but like we've been trying for a few months now, only, only like four or whatever. But when you start, I'm starting to feel a little, I'm, I'm pretty confident we'll be fine, but you, it's starting to make me realize like, Oh wow. Like it's definitely possible. Maybe like w- it would have been easier when we were younger, you know? So it's like, and a lot of people face this, right? I mean, I, I think we're going to be fine, but this is something that a lot of people face when they wait long especially people who wait longer than me, when you want to, you might not be able to. And, and that's a really, that's a very scary and very painful thing. Like, like I said, we've only been trying for four months and we haven't, we haven't gotten lucky yet. And I'm starting, I'm starting to feel a little like existential, like, like dread or I don't know what to call it exactly. And I'm even, and, and, and and that's even knowing pretty confidently we'll be, we'll be fine, but I can't imagine what it might feel like to be, you know, if I was like, you know, 40 and my wife was, you know, 37 and, and we were having, having a hard time, like that thought of wanting to have a child, but realizing maybe you waited too long and maybe it will never happen. That just feels very like that. That's a very sad situation to be in. Um, not sad, like looking down on them. I mean, sad for being sympathetic, like that's an extreme kind of sadness. And, um, people want to, people want to watch out for that because it's, it's just, like I said before about aging, you know, you might be like a super suave, handsome 27 year old uh, pulling in girls as easily as you want. But before you know it, you know, that hairline might start receding. You know, you might, you know, you know, it's going to, it's going to be hard to keep, stay super slim and slim as you get older, that kind of stuff. And you might find yourself like not too distant future. All of a sudden you're like, oh, not as attractive as it used to be. And uh, that these things sneak up on you. It's like watching paint dry. There's never a moment where, oh, okay, the paint is about to dry. I need to get on this. No, it's like, it's like boiling a frog, right? Like once you realize anything's happening, it's too late, you know? So um, it's a, it's a very similar thing here that we're talking about when it comes to fertility and uh, people need to be aware of it, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've, I mean, I've annoyingly harp on about this all the time because I've, you know, i I kind of am in these circles, you know, I talk, I talk to these girls and, you know, a lot of people have problems and you don't even have to be 37. I mean, the thing is it's, it's age at, on one level, but it's also, you know, all of, all of the like environmental factors, all sorts of things like, you know, fer- fertility seems at least, at least from my anecdata to be quite a challenge for my generation of women. Uh, I've been super lucky. I've been, I guess I'm <laughs> just weird. Yeah. We're, you know, Eastern European stock, but uh, you know, it could have gone either way, but um, it, it also kind of confronts you with, with this cosmic dimension that everyone wants to avoid. Like, you know, once once you have children, because that, that's one thing I've kept thinking about, like, you know, what, you know, there's there are like 7000 failure points in this adventure that we're on now, you know, like, you know miscarriage stillbirth you know the baby gets sick it dies you know SIDS all sorts of levels of absolute cosmic horror that I'm signing up for now uh, because you know I want to I want to go on this and I I could imagine someone who's you know people who've been sheltered and a lot of us have been sheltered from you know the the realities of life would just want to not even can't you can't even start contemplating this stuff until you know it comes to you so I feel like, you know, that's, that's definitely one thing I was thinking about, you know, earlier in my life. And I was like, I wouldn't even know how to deal with this stuff.
1: Totally. It's true. But you know, no, no risk, no reward. It's like you, you only access the true cosmic beauties by exposing yourself to the, to the cosmic horrors. You know what I mean? I, I think there's a pretty direct uh, proportionality there. So it's like, yeah, if you want to live like a super toast life where you never really feel anything that powerfully deep and good um, by, and you, and you want to avoid the risk of, of these kinds of, uh, you know, fears and problems and, and, and potential catastrophes then, uh, yeah, sure. Fine. Live like a milk toast life that never, you know, accesses the, the deep good or the deep bad. But, uh, I want the whole thing, you know, I want the whole, I want, I want the maximum, I want, I want everything. I want all of life. I want the whole, the whole maximum range of what life involves personally.
0: Yeah, I, I I like this uh, this lens on things and I feel like, you know, more people are starting to to adopt this and more people are starting to understand that you really can't have the the good without the bad, you know, you can you can live in in this tepid, you know, pod for a while, but I feel like a lot a lot more people want to break out of the pod, so I'm I'm really excited to be to be part of the movement of <laughs> people trying to break out of the pod. Um so uh, I have a question of the show, which I usually try to, to wrap things up with. Uh, is, do you have a, um, a subversive thinker, like a, a writer or, you know, intellectual that is an inspiration to you that you think uh, belongs out there that people should read more of or, or know about?
1: Ooh, so more like on the underrated, underrecognized side yeah. you're asking about?
0: Yeah.
1: Mm. Wow. I'm spoiled for choice now that mm-hmm. I run Indie Thinkers. I have uh, a, a list of people I can easily draw on, but now the problem I face is uh, not picking favorites. I don't want to. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to pick favorites, but um, yeah, Indie Thinkers is basically filled with exactly this type of person. It's kind of the whole the whole idea behind it. So it's all really smart people who want to do long term intellectual work, but most of them you haven't heard of, but some of them you might have heard of. So let me think who would be a good person to give a shout out to. Um, um one of our members who's been most successful since uh joining and i mean i'm not taking credit for his success although you know everything everything he's done to really be successful recently came after he joined um so i take a little bit of i'm just happy to see that but it's not like i caused it or i'm certainly not taking credit um but he's probably i would say our most impressive success case in terms of uh, people who come into indie thinkers and then really like uh kind of get involved but also um, kind of use the group to help them, <clears throat> and then actually successfully um, kind of take off in a way would be Jeffrey Schullenberger. Do you know him?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's been on a podcast. I know. Jeff. Oh,
1: that's right. Of course. Yeah. So shout out to Jeffrey. Uh, I think he's very impressive and currently underrated for sure. I know him just through Indie Thinkers, but uh, he's he's super smart, great guy, and he's uh, he seems to be increasingly. He's 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 a he's a lecturer at NYU, but I, he's increasingly. Putting more and more of his effort and 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 investment into his independent uh, kind of profile or platform online, and he's succeeding a lot. I think he's going to probably be much bigger than he currently is. So um, you heard that here first. Uh, he's very good. Another person I would give a shout out to from Indie Thinkers is Emmett Penny. Who do you know him by any chance?
0: Yeah, he has a, a, a podcast as well.
1: No. Yeah, that's right. He has a relatively new podcast uh, called mm-hmm. Exhaust. And again, just very smart guy, very thoughtful. And uh, I think currently is, is, is very underpriced and uh, under, under, under recognized. So those are two names I would, I would shout out that uh, I bet you in five years, and 10 years, they'll be, um, they'll, they'll be much more recognized and respected. So th- those are my two.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely can concur with 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 Jeff. I feel like you know a, a lot of people should be reading more Jeff, and I think his, his perspective on postmodernism, especially, is a uh, is really useful <laughs> given given what uh, you know what's going on in the culture wars, and he's he's got a really fresh lens on it. So, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, he's kind of like you in that he you know not too in the not too you know distant past, kind of just decided he wanted to be more serious about doing work on the internet and applying his his academic background and his, his, his frameworks to truly genuinely interesting kind of internet, internet native questions and phenomena in a, in a genuinely independent way. And if you, if you can do that and you can follow through and you can put in the work, it, it works, you know, like it, it is possible to build an audience and build a profile and, and, and build a name for yourself and build yeah an audience by just deciding to, and then being, being strategic about it, but also like putting in the work and, but also being, you know, honest and authentic, uh, to what you're really all about. Um, like it's fairly reproducible. It's not, it's not like a magic, it's not a magical, obscure process about how this works. I don't think, I think it's fairly reproducible. So I just have a lot of respect for people like you, people like Jeffrey, um, Jeff, I'm sorry, who basically, you know, decide they want to win on the internet and they set about doing it and then they, su- they succeed in doing it. I, I I appreciate that a lot.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, doesn't Jeffrey have, um, uh, a new course with you guys, like uh, a Gerard course.
1: That's right. That's right. We're, I, I, I have not yet uploaded the website, but it's about to launch. So we're kind of, uh, we've been, we've been moderately spreading the word, uh, low key, but, uh, I haven't announced it yet, but yeah, Dr- uh, Jeff will be teaching a, a full eight week course on Rene Girard, uh, starting in mid June, I'm going to be dropping the website for that and letting people sign up for updates, um, like any, any day now, probably. So thanks for asking.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about that. I feel like, you know, both Jeff and, and Gerard de- deserve more, more, uh, interest and more, uh, you know, more, more clout.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be really good. I just did a course with Michael Millerman t- who taught Leo Strauss and it was massive. Like people, a lot of people signed up, And everyone loved it. It just finished, actually. So, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting pretty good at this online course game. It's like a weird thing, you know, to do. There's no one out. There's really no one else out there who's doing um, like highbrow philosophy courses online outside of institutions. But I've I've done a few now, and uh, yeah, so I've learned a thing or two about like what makes them work well, what 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 makes them work less well, and uh, yeah, I'm really quite pleased with with the model, and uh, people seem to love it. And so yeah, we'll be doing more. I'm also going to be doing a course in july with nina power on ivan illich
0: oh nice yeah another another person who deserves more i think that we got more like illich shout outs on this podcast and i guess any other uh you know subversive thinker <laughs>
1: nice yeah he, his, his stock price is rising big time right now and rightfully so i think
0: yeah for sure well this this was really really exciting is there any other uh place you people can find you you know anything you would like to to promo
1: If people want to hear more from me or follow my work, the easiest way is just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co and uh, just sign up there. And I send out, you know, writings and videos and podcasts and all of that kind of stuff there. So that's the easiest way to follow. And uh, yeah, there's indiethinkers.org. But that's specifically for people who are really trying to get serious about pursuing a long-term intellectual project. And they really want to make that like a major part of their focus in their life uh indythinkers.org. It's a private membership community. It's not cheap, it, but it's for like a very specific type of person who is trying to do something quite hard. And we have a lot of features and benefits that support a very specific goal of of basically building an, a, a long term intellectual life purely on the internet outside of institutions. So uh, our members quite like it. Um, you know, it seems it seems like it really works, and people are happy with it. So I'm I'm proud of that. Indythinkers.org. Yeah. That's that's all I got. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, well, you should be. i I definitely en- endorse it fully. So, whoever wants to, you know, do writing, thinking, talking on the internet, yeah, go to Indie Thinkers. You'll you'll find a great community there.
1: Thanks, Alex. I appreciate that, and thanks for having me on. This was fun.
0: Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you.
1: All right, you got it.
0: If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it. And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.